Lord, it is good to remind ourselves that nothing compares to you. Nothing is as good as the promise you have for us, as the hope that we have in you. Lord, I pray this morning as we have gathered together um, that we would be reminded of the hope that we have because of who you are. That as we look at our world, at the destruction, um, the war, violence, injustice, God, that we would have hope that your peace will reign, that your reconciliation will come, that you will right all of the wrongs. God, we put our hope in you for that. As we look at our own country, as our own lives, where things are disappointing, where we are unsure or uncertain, where maybe we are fearful of what is to come, we put our hope in you that you hold us in your hands. That you know exactly what um, is coming for us in our days and weeks and months of this year that you walk faithfully by our side every step of the way, that your presence never leaves us. God, we put our hope in you because of that. I pray this morning that as we sing together, as we hear from your word, as we participate as your people gathered here in this place, that that hope would reign in our lives. And that as we leave, we would bring that hope with us to the places we inhabit throughout the week. So Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning. We ask that we would tangibly feel your presence here with us. Um, And we give you praise for all of these things, Lord, that you are our faithful God. So we give this morning to you. Um, We love you, Lord, and it's in your good and holy name we pray. Amen. And as we come back together, I'm going to read for us our scripture reading that um, has been picked to prepare us for what Bernard will come and share with us. So here are these words from Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. The word, then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed in the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Will Bernard come and share with us this morning? Well, good morning to all of you. So it was a dark and stormy night. Uh, we've had a few of these lately, although uh, sunshine is out right now. And uh, Lake Tahoe um, has been enduring a few dark and stormy nights and days. 
And when the storms hit, we hope that our uh, roofs are secure and that they won't leak. We hope that the trees will not be uprooted but stay firmly anchored into the ground. Because high winds and down trees have called multiple widespread power outages uh, for most of us over the last year or two. In every high and stormy gale, we hope to stay safe and secure, even if it is by candlelight. While the Apostle Paul endured many dark and stormy nights and days, his high and stormy gale lasted two full weeks. Uh, he was on his way uh, by ship uh, under military escort from Judea to Rome, there to appeal to Caesar. And uh, his ship was struck by a ferocious storm and driven helplessly across the high sea. And Luke gives us a vivid, detailed, and lengthy description of the storm and the result in the shipwreck in Acts chapter 27. And in the middle of the 14th night of that great storm, the sailors sensed that they were nearing land. And now there was a new danger that they would be dashed to pieces against the rocks. And so they dropped not just one, but four anchors from the stern of the ship. And they longed for daylight. Now, earlier this year, I uh, worked through uh, Luke's fascinating account in, uh, in close detail. This wasn't just uh, idle curiosity on my part, but in May, 42 of us from here will follow in Paul's footsteps for the final part of his journey, beginning in Malta. And uh, so in May, we will visit the traditional site of the shipwreck. Now, Paul was on a ship bringing grain from Egypt to Rome, and these were the largest ships of the day. Now, I learned uh, that each ship carried several massive anchors for emergency use. And these were not the sort of anchors uh, that one traditionally thinks of being on a ship. They had a crossbeam of lead that could weigh several tons. And you can see the size of that anchor on the right. Uh, it's about uh, 12 feet tall. Uh, so great was the emergency facing Paul's ship that the sailors lowered four of these heavy anchors, hoping to keep the ship from the rocks. And several of these lead beams have been found near the site. That's a photo on the left. So anchors have been very much on my mind for the past two months. One of the earliest Christian symbols is the anchor. And many depictions of anchors have been found in the catacombs on the uh, outskirts of Rome. Uh, sometimes they're included uh, with other symbols of the fish or the cross. And you see all three of these symbols here in this uh, um, engraving in the catacombs. And the anchor is an obvious symbol of safety and security. And in Christian use, it is also a symbol of hope. And this image is used in the well-known hymn that begins, my hope is built on nothing less. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. And this imagery from that hymn comes from today's passage, Hebrews chapter six, verses 13 through 20. And the preacher of Hebrews connects the anchor motif to Jesus' ministry as high priest, which is the main point of his written sermon. Now, earlier, he had written that Jesus was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek, in chapter 5, verse 10. But rather than immediately give an exposition of this high priesthood of Jesus, he switched to exhortation, 5.11 through 6.12, which is what we've covered in my last three sermons. 
And he ended that exhortation with a call in chapter six, verse 12, to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So who are these people who through faithful perseverance and persevering faithfulness are inheriting the promises? Well, exhibit A is Abraham. And the preacher uses the example of Abraham to begin a transition back to where he left off in 510, back to Jesus as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so we come to today's text, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, and uh, the text itself is printed on the little worship sheet that you would have picked up. Divine promise and fulfillment were exemplified in Abraham, verses 13 through 15. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, God's promise to Abraham is of fundamental importance in the biblical narrative, in the whole history of redemption. It kicks off the storyline into which we are incorporated when we come to Christ. So why is this promise to Abraham so important? Well, when God created the first humans, he commanded and enabled them to fill the world with people. Then he placed them in his sanctuary, the Garden of Eden, there to live in his presence and enjoy fellowship with God. But due to human disobedience, God expelled them from the garden and they filled the earth with evil and violence. So God wiped the earth clean with the flood and started again, this time with Noah and his three sons. And he said, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And they did. The sons of Shem, Ham and Noah and Japheth spread out across the whole earth by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. 17 nations in all. But people resisted scattering and gathered together to build a tower to heaven, the Tower of Babel. So a second time, God began over again. He couldn't wipe the earth clean again with the flood because he had made a covenant never to do so again. He did something different. He took one person from that wicked society and called him to leave everything behind. And he made him a promise beginning of Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And really, the rest of the Bible is the fulfillment of this promise. Yet the likelihood of fulfillment seemed very remote. Abram and his wife were both very old. Abram was 75, Sarah was 65. She was barren and she had no child. So the raw material God had to work with, this old couple, was not promising at all. Nevertheless, God made a promise. He committed himself to transform Abram into a new people in the midst of the existing 70 peoples and through him to restore blessing to a world that was in rebellion against him. Abram obeyed God and journeyed to Canaan where God made another promise to give his descendants that land, which of course assumes that the promise of descendants would be fulfilled. 
And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised, the preacher's rights. But it was not an easy wait. It was a long wait, full of ups and downs. Some years later, as we heard in our scripture reading, God told him, I am your very great reward. But Abram reminded God, what can you give me since I remain childless? You have given me no children. God invited him to look up and count the stars. So shall your offspring be. And the Lord repeated the promise. Abraham responded in faith. He believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram took God at his word. He accepted that the Lord was reliable and trustworthy, that he would do what he said he would do, that he would fulfill the promise. However unlikely this seemed, even though Abram could see no way it would happen. And God equated this response of faith with righteousness. It was the right response within the relationship between the Lord and Abraham. Now the Lord's righteousness lies in doing what he said he would do. It means being faithful to his word and to his character. And Abram's righteousness lay in completely trusting that God would do what he said he would do. And then 10 years after arriving in the land when he was 75 and Abram 85, Sarah lost patience in waiting. She gave Abram her maidservant Hagar, who bore him a son. And so at the age of 86, Abram at last became a father. Now he was father Abraham. But Ishmael was not the son of promise. Nevertheless, the Lord would bless Ishmael and his descendants. From them come the Arab peoples. Muslims trace themselves back through Ishmael to Abraham. And thus Islam is one of the Abrahamic faiths. In Ramadan, their holy month begins next Sunday, when Muslims will be particularly sensitive to spiritual matters. And so as Becca mentioned at the beginning of the service, I invite you to come here on Wednesday evening to hear Fouad Masri, founder of the Crescent Project, tell us how to love our Muslim neighbors, um, especially at the season of Ramadan. And then not all Arabs are Muslims. There are many Arab Christians, and there are many Palestinian Christians who have been grafted into Abram's line through Isaac by faith. Thirteen years later, when Abram was 99, the Lord repeated his promise and this time made a covenant that he would be God to him and his offspring forever. And this covenant was sealed by circumcision of all males. He changed Abram's name to Abraham, father of a multitude. He changed Sarah's, Sarai's name to Sarah, princess. And he announced that the promised son would be born the next year. For is anything too hard for the Lord? And so finally, Sarah bore a son to Abram in his old age at the very time that God had promised him. Abram received what was promised. He was 100. He had been waiting for 25 years. His waiting was over. Or was it? Some years later, God tested Abraham, and what a test it was. The Lord gave him a new command, one with similar features to the original call. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, 
Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. How could this be? Surrender the fulfilled promise back to the Lord? Give back the long-awaited gift? But Isaac was only the first part of the promise. He was the promised son, but if he died, there would be no great nation from him. But Abraham did so. He was faithful and obedient as he had been at the beginning. Most of you know the rest of the story. Christians call it the uh, sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, Jews call it the akedah, the binding. The account is full of pathos, of wrenching emotion that pulls on the heartstrings. We read this almost unbearable conversation between son and father. Father. Yes, my son. The fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. God would provide. How he did not know, but Abraham was faithful and obedient, and God did provide, but not till the very last moment when Abraham had knife in hand. God stopped him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abram called the place Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. That's the name for God that I grew up hearing all throughout my entire childhood, as I'm sure some of you did as well. And then the Lord repeated the promise, this time swearing an oath. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now in Hebrews, the preacher quotes from the Greek translation, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Because the promise was not just for a son, but for a numerous people. So by this point, it's perhaps 35 years since God first called Abraham. His faith had wavered at times. Now it was unshakable. Abraham trusted God to the extreme. He considered God to be utterly reliable. And so he became the paragon of faithfulness, the model for God's people to imitate. After waiting patiently, he had received what was promised. The Apostle Paul also presents him as the exemplar of faith. In Romans, we read that he believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now the next paragraph, uh, Hebrews 6, 16 through 20, is a single complex sentence in the original, far beyond the tolerance of English readers to make their way through. Um, So we're gonna break it into two sections. First, in verses 16 through 18, the preacher elaborates on the theme of oaths. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. 
because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Now, in an ideal world, people's every word would be trustworthy and reliable. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not swear an oath at all. Shouldn't have to swear an oath. Instead, our word should be straightforward and true. And in the parallel teaching at the end of Matthew, he chastised the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocritical use of, use of oaths, by which they tried to weasel out of their commitments, saying that an oath sworn by one thing is valid and an oath sworn by something else is not binding. Now we don't, as we all know, we don't live in an ideal world for every word is reliable and true. And so in certain situations, people are required to take an oath and then give sworn testimony. Do you solemnly swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And usually the person taking the oath is required to place a hand on the Bible or some other sacred book that is considered to be a superior authority, placing themselves under that authority. And they add, so help me God. An oath confirms what is said, so there can be no dispute. And false testimony under oath is perjury, which is often a far more serious offense than the original case in which the false testimony might have been given. The Old Testament contains numerous oaths, and even God took an oath. And his word is always reliable and true. He doesn't need to bind himself by, it to, by an oath to ensure he speaks truth. He is truth. It is impossible for him to lie. It is impossible for him to be false. He is not devious with his words. He does not mislead with his words. He does not overpromise and underdeliver. Now Satan, the adversary, is the complete opposite. As Jesus told the Jewish leaders, he likened them to the devil and said they were like the sons of the devil, who is not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan's lang native language is falsehood, deception, lies, subterfuge. His speech flows from his character. God's native language is truth and integrity. This flows from his character. He needs no oath to bind himself to truth. Why then did he bind himself with an oath? He did so for us. He did so for two reasons. His first reason for the oath is to demonstrate very clearly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, as if in a court of law, the unchanging nature of his purpose. And he demonstrates this to us, to all who are inheriting the promise. His purpose is to incorporate a vast people into this promise. His purpose is that the children of Abram, born according to promise, fill the world as the stars fill the sky and as the sand fills the seashore. And he bound himself with an oath so that all who are inheriting the promise will have an unshakable confidence in him, in God, that what he said he will do, he will do. 
He wants us to have the same faith as Abraham. And the second reason for the oath attached to the promise is so that we have a strong encouragement and comfort. We have fled for refuge from the coming storm, from judgment at the end of this age. And in the Old Testament, God designated six cities of refuge to which people might flee. It's a similar idea. And in the Psalter, God is often described as our refuge, a stronghold in time of trouble. Earlier in chapter two, in the first warning passage, the preacher had warned, how shall we escape from just punishment if we ignore so great a salvation? How shall we escape? How shall we flee? We flee from that coming judgment and we flee towards safety and salvation. And when we flee to Christ for refuge, we become heirs of promise. For if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. And in our flight, we grab hold of the hope that is laid out before us, as if we're grabbing onto a, a rope that stretches into the future. And our confidence in God's irrevocable purpose gives us strong encouragement to keep holding on to that rope, to keep holding on to hope. And we need regular encouragement because the storms will hit. And when they do, we'll be tempted to doubt the reliability of God and of his purpose, that he will do what he said he would do. We'll be tempted to lose hope. We'll be tempted to let go of the rope. And what is our refuge? What rope do we hold on to when the storms hit? It is hope that marks the path forward all the way to the fulfillment of the promise. And it is this hope that we hold on to. And finally, in verses 19 and 20, the preacher elaborates on this theme of hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain for our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hope serves as an anchor for our soul, for our very being, our whole person. It is firm and secure. It is well dug in. It is well anchored. It will not give way. It will not come loose. This anchor enters within the veil. It passes through the curtain into the space beyond. And this veil divided the holy place from the most holy place in the tabernacle and later the temple. So the tabernacle was God's dwelling place in the midst of his people, but access was restricted. A screen at the entrance to the courtyard excluded the people. A screen at the entrance to the tent excluded priests except those on duty inside. And the veil excluded everyone except on the Day of Atonement when one person, the high priest, went through the veil. And there within the veil he sprinkled blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant to cleanse himself, to cleanse the people, and to cleanse the camp from sin and impurity so that God could continue to dwell among his people. The sacred geography of the tabernacle was one of both embrace and exclusion. But now our hope enters into the inner sanctum, into God's very presence, and there it is firmly anchored and it will not move. 
And an anchor only works if something is attached to it. Usually a ship or a boat that's attached by a rope or a chain. And we are at the other end of that rope. We are firmly tethered to that anchor within the veil. Jesus, our forerunner, has already entered into that space. He remained faithful through every high and stormy gale throughout his life, and especially his last dark night, when he was betrayed, arrested, forsaken, tried, and sentenced. And he is now the paradigm of faithful endurance. God himself provided the lamb. He did not withhold his son, his one and only, whom he loved, Jesus, but gave him up for us all. And vindicated in resurrection and ascension, Jesus has passed through the veil into God's presence. And his admission there is as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Here, the, brought, the preacher has brought us back to his main point. Jesus is high priest. And in due course, we will learn that Jesus has taken with him into the inner sanctum his own blood to sprinkle for purification for sin. Our anchor there inside the veil is hope. The sure and certain hope that if we keep holding on to the rope, Jesus will pull us towards the anchor. He will pull us to himself. For the anchor is Jesus. So what is your anchor? Is your anchor placed set in this world? Or is it Jesus within the veil? There are many things in this world that we can anchor ourselves to. We can anchor ourselves to health, wealth, and prosperity. We can anchor ourselves to family, especially children and their success. We can anchor ourselves to work and the financial success it might bring or to the idea of promotion. We can anchor ourselves to the quest for significance. There are so many things that may be good in and of themselves, but they are inadequate of an as anchors. In high and stormy gales, they do not hold. They give way. Abraham's faith gave way on several occasions. Fearful for his life, he passed his wife Sarah off as his sister. Not once, but twice. And he heeded his wife's plan to bear a surrogate son through Hagar. So in his ups and downs, he certainly had his downs, times of faltering hope and faltering faith. But by the end of his spiritual odyssey of 35 years, he had an unshakable faith in God and in his word. His faith was firmly anchored in God and in the reliability of God. Now, I know some of you are weathering high and stormy gales. Some of you in serious ill health. You're facing alarming medical news. Some have major family issues. Your security has been rocked. 
Testament. Our hope, which is Jesus, is the only anchor strong enough to hold us through the fiercest storms. Another symbol used by the early church was the boat or ship. Uh, The main space of a traditional church building is called the nave because it's like an upside down boat. Uh, The Latin word for boat is navis, from which we get nave. And the whole church is in the boat together. Jesus himself is not in the boat. He was in the boat with the disciples, but now he is within the veil. And in the imagery of Hebrews, he is the anchor to which the boat is securely tethered. And as we make our pilgrimage through life, we will be beset with storms and tempests. But we are not alone. Jesus may not be in the boat, but we are all in the boat together as a body of Christ. And we care for one another. We love one another. We encourage one another to remain faithful. And God's spirit is present with us in the boat. And our boat is firmly anchored to Jesus, who is within the veil, where he serves as our merciful and faithful high priest. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Though the boat may be tossed around by the storms, it will be secure as long as we hold on to the rope, anchored to our hope, anchored in Jesus. So in every high and stormy gale, our anchor holds within the veil. Amen. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal current encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Go in peace. Amen.